This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sarah. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. Today's show features an excursion into the country through a novel that Enda loves. And debut Irish novelist Marianne Lee. Her new book, A Quiet Tide, has just been published by New Island Books. She'll be in and she will also be rising to the toaster challenge. And in our heads at least, we'll be travelling to Sweden to explore the poetry of Lars Gustafsson. So the coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. And you brought in a novel I know you've been a fan of for a long time. In fact, every time we go away, it seems to get us out smuggled into the suitcase. And mm-hmm. also, it comes with an introduction by another writer that I know you also admire. What is the book? Yeah, that's right, Peter. It is true that I do tend to put this book um, in my suitcase if I'm going away for a few weeks every year. It's called A Month in the Country. It's by a writer called J.L. Carr. And I heard about this writer through Penelope Fitzgerald and her fantastic introduction to this book. And she in turn heard about this book from Michael Holroyd in one of his books. So in a way, I like that idea that uh, books are gifted to you through writers. Um, I wouldn't usually be a fan of reading the introduction to books, first of all. But I do think that Penelope Fitzgerald gives a marvellous introduction to this amazing writer. And also, I think he's a writer very much like her. I mean, her brilliant novels were fueled by her trademark humour and her offbeat observations on life. I mean, I think Hermione Lee said about Penelope Fitzgerald's books, her books inhabit a small space but seem magically to reach out beyond it. And I felt that A Month in the Country by J.L. Carr quite similarly seems to inhabit a small space but goes beyond it. The year in the book is 1922. Tom Birkin, he's a young 25-year-old, he arrives at Oxford Ox got to be train station. I hope I'm pronouncing that right in North Yorkshire. It's pouring rain. It's dark. Uh, We're told that his nerves are shot to pieces. His wife gone. He's dead broke. And on top of that, he's a facial twitch from being in the trenches. And he really hopes that this will improve in Yorkshire. It's going to be a time for healing for him. But he's also been trained by one of the last experts as a restorer of medieval murals. And he's been employed to uncover a 14th century painting on the wall of the Yorkshire Village Church in Oxcudby. His fee is 25 guineas. Now check that out. In today's terms, it would probably be about 100 euro. It's not very much. Um, And he's to live in the church tower and he's given absolutely no support really whatsoever from the cranky Reverend Keach, who just says you're to sleep in the tower and get working. But the rain does stop and um, you'll be pleased to hear. And beyond this point, the novel slowly reveals the absolutely wonderful sunny summer of 1920 in North Yorkshire. It's it's a quiet masterpiece, I actually think. We'll get back to the cranky Reverend Keach, who seems to be like a, a brilliant creation a bit later on maybe, but can you tell us, I mean, who, who exactly was J.L. Carr? J.L. stands for Jim Lloyd, Jim Lloyd Carr. He was born in 1912 to a Yorkshire Methodist family. His father used to preach in the Wesleyan Tin Tabernacle, you know, those churches that, which are made out of corrugated iron. And this kind of directly leads into the novel A Month in the Country, where Birkin helps with the dafties, as he calls it, at the Wesleyan Sunday School. I mean, the novel is not without a lot of humour as well. Um, but because... Sorry, who are the dafties? They, they, they're kind of the congregation of the Wesleyan Sunday School in the community. And you see, they quite like 
Tom Birkin, this new character in the community. And they like him and they ask him to get involved. And there's one actually beautiful scene in the book where he takes part in the glorious Sunday school outing with them all. Anyway, J.L. Carr, just to get back to him, he went on to become a teacher and a publisher of historical maps, tiny booklets. Um, He called them the little poets. But when he retired in 1968 from teaching, he was 56. He he, he began to write a lot more. And in 1979, he wrote his masterpiece, A Month in the Country. And in 1980, when he was 68 years old, it was published. It won the Guardian Fiction Prize and it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And in a way, to go back to Penelope Fitzgerald herself, I mean, she unexpectedly won the Booker Prize at age 63. So I really think there is no particular age or time when anyone should write a novel. But anyway, when, as Jim Carr called it, the fine men came from London, they came to his house in Kettering and they said to him they were going to make a film. And they said they had one objection, and that was that Turgenev had already used this title a month in the country. And apparently J.L. Carr said, oh, is that so? I don't think I'll change mine, though. And I like that kind of attitude because it's the same attitude that you find in the book coming from the character Birkin. He's kind of got a quirky, humorous aspect to him. Really good point of view um, coming through the novel. I actually really liked him and I was very sad when the book came to the end. Just to get back to the book, I mean, at the beginning, he, he arrives, he's a southerner and he's, he's suddenly arriving in pouring rain in this North Yorkshire kind of village. And obviously he's, he feels totally ill at ease there. But there are, it turns out there's, there are at least three other strangers in this book as well. Isn't that right? Yeah, I don't think he's really alone in feeling isolated. I mean... He does get surprised. I'll tell you a little bit about that later uh, by the community. He thinks that they're not going to accept him. They're not going to welcome him. But he's kind of in a way, a weird way, a lucky enough character. I know he's been in the trenches and he's had terrible troubles, but he's he begun, begins to be surrounded by other people who who really are, as you said, strangers as well. For instance, there's Moon, brilliant, brilliant title, uh, name for a character. He's the archaeologist and now he's kind of posh. Whereas Tom is not. Tom's father made soaps and Moon often kind of makes jokes about this. But Moon is outside the church walls and he's digging for the remains of of obviously a body <laughs> there. And so he's the archaeologist and uh, Tom's job is to to uncover the, the mural. And then, of course, they, they strike up a friendship, which is good. It's good that they can be there to support each other. Moon, I think, is much more sophisticated in his ability to heal after the war. And in a way, he kind of encourages Birkin to do this too. Then there's, of course, the Reverend Keach, who's a prickly character. I mean, he, he's really kind of, they call, he's, he's just not a very nice person. And very, they, I think uh, Tom refers to him as the sour paymaster. But he has this beautiful wife, Alice, Alice Keach. We'll talk a bit more about that in a while. She's redepicted as quite a lovely character going around with um, roses in her in her hat. But there's also, it has to be said, a fourth stranger. And that is the long dead, unknown wall painter himself. And just to quote from the book, uh, J.L. Carr says, a nameless painter reaching from the dark to show me what he could do, saying to me as clear as any words, if any part of me survives from time's corruption, let it be this, for this was the sort of man I was. And so throughout the book, there is this this kind of other character there, the nameless painter. And slowly, slowly, Birkin starts to reveal the mural on the wall. And, and, and there is a falling 
character there. So we're, we're wondering, is this falling character in the mural, the painter himself, did he fall? Did he commit suicide? Is it connected to Moon and his digging outside? So there is a kind of a mystery there as well, which I, I really enjoyed. And like all good books, it doesn't necessarily have to answer the questions, but, but the questions are there. And then, of course, there is the other the other aspect of this book, the Yorkshire community. They're, they're fantastically well drawn. Uh, I really liked the character, Cathy Ellerbeck. She's a 14-year-old um, who yells invites up to the ladder at Birkin in the tower where he lives and she asks him to come for Sunday lunch and that adds a bit of humour as well. So in a way, even though he arrives as a stranger, he is very strongly welcomed into the community. You say, because it, it's, uh, it's a novel obviously that harks back to that glorious sunny summer of 1922 and one of the things I like about it, he, he, he seems to capture that time there's a great scene at the beginning, I mean, when he arrives and he, he gets off the train, it's lashing rain, he, he, he goes up to the church and he, he's met by the reverend promptly and, and, you know, he turns out to be this kind of crusty, mean-minded character and there's a huge, big discussion about the stove. It's a great, it's a great um, scene about the, the Bankton Crowther stove in, in the church. I know. It is very funny. And actually, you can see why this book was made into such a great film. It starred Colin Firth and Kenneth Branagh and Natasha Richardson. And it's cinematic. It is visual. And what's so great is that there are many humorous and quirky discussions like this throughout the book. And through dialogue, you instantly become aware from the very beginning that this Reverend Keach, and he spells it J.L. Carr as R-E-V-D. And in her introduction, Penelope Fitzgerald points out that he was never really good at going back and checking at spelling mistakes on his manuscript. But anyway, the Reverend Keach does get very cranky and parsimonious about the stove and says, oh, no, no, I'm not sure now if, you know, we can afford for you to put that on. You have a primus stove, maybe that'll work. And then, of course, Tom Birkin says, well, you know, if I use that, I could cause a fire and you really don't want to be losing money if there was a fire. And and so the Bankton Crowther stove, it's agreed upon that he can use it. But I love the description of the stove. Uh, he says there seemed to be several knobs and toggles for which I could see no purpose. Mainly this damned big monster was going to provide me with several pleasurably instructive hours learning its foibles. So, so the, the the book is full of I, I think really great descriptions like that. And there's a big thing about horses too, isn't it? Isn't that right? Yeah, actually, um, there is. Um, well, I, I suppose you were saying, as you said uh, earlier, that it, it harks back to a horse-drawn lamplit age. He very subtly evokes lost rural customs and ways of living that even had begun to fade when he began to write about them. But if I could just read this really beautiful piece about the horses, because I think you get a very strong sense of his wonderful writing. So he says, and then they came... The morning sun gleaming on their chestnut black backs, glinting from martingales meddled like generals. Their manes were plaited with patriotic ribbons, their harness glowed, those great magical creatures soon to disappear from highways and turning furrows. And then he says, am I making too much of this, perhaps? But there are times when man and earth are one, when the pulse of living beats strong, when life is brimming with promise and the future stretches confidently ahead like that road to the hills. Well, I was young. 
And so this, this, there is this kind of nostalgic feel to the loss of that of that wonderful world. Bit of the houseman's Shropshire lad about all this as well, isn't that, isn't that right? Well, yeah. I mean, the beginning of the book has three very important epigraphs, and he mentions houseman and houseman. I think was really important to to J.L. Carr, particularly a Shropshire Shropshire lad. Um, And the epigraph that he quotes says, I am here on earth only for a short time. You must trust me. Take my hand quick and tell me what of you in your heart. And what has Tom Birkin in his heart? I think what he really has is his love for Alice Keach. And there, there, there is another epigraph as well at the beginning from Dr. Johnson's dictionary, a novel, a small tale generally of love. And so we're constantly wondering, is he going to is he going to win the heart of this wonderful Alice, this Botticelli with garden roses in her hat? There is a moment and then perhaps it passes. And in many ways, when I was reading this book, I was thinking of Patrick Kavanagh in his poem, The Hospital, uh, when he says, snatch out of time, the passionate transitory. And that's what I feel J.L. Carr is trying to do in this book. He's trying to capture the passionate transitory. And if anybody hasn't read this book, they need to go out right now and get their hands on a copy. So thanks for that, Enda. Enda was talking about A Month in the Country by J.L. Carr. And it's available as a modern penguin classic and all details will be on booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com And now it's time for the Toaster Challenge, where we invite a guest in to speak about a book that they like, a book they recommend, a favourite choice. And today's guest is Marianne Lee. Her debut novel, A Quiet Tide, has just been published by New Island Books in April 2020. Marianne, you're very welcome. Thank you, Enda. Lovely to be here. It's great to have you here. Well, Marianne, um, she grew up in Tullamore County, Offaly. She's no stranger at all to the creative world. She's published a collection of poems as well as recorded an album of music. Um, Marianne has an MPhil in creative writing from Trinity College. Um, I hear that she sings Bach and paints pictures. I wonder, might you do both today? I'm not sure, Marianne. Maybe it's the painting, yeah. (laughs) Maybe it's the painting. She lives in Dublin with her husband and works as a freelance art director and copywriter. And it was lovely to see a quote on your book from the author Nulo O'Connor who says you are a new literary star so you have a myriad of talents there Marianne um, and you're very welcome so um, we're just going to begin by perhaps talking a little bit about your book Um, the novel it's set in the early 1800s and it's about Ellen Hutchins, who is Ireland's first ever botanist. I think by the time for her death, she'd recorded over a thousand species of seaweeds and plants in, in Bantry. But she'd also established herself internationally um, in a quite a male dominated field. And I think the novel is great at depicting all the struggles that she had to go through. But I suppose what I, I really want to ask, first of all, Marianne, is did you always want to write about her? I was very interested in that period, that historical period and it's not a period that's very well served by fiction. There are other historical periods in Ireland, I think, that are more widely covered. Um, I'm very interested in the aesthetic of that period. So it was almost the aesthetic of the period that led me to broader research. And from that, I came across Ellen's name and the name of Dr. Whitley Stokes, the, 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 the physician that she goes to live with for a while to recover her health. And he becomes very influential, influential in her life. And I found her story immediately uh, very interesting. I thought there was great mystery in her story, how somebody of her 
background, schooling, education, being a, a young woman of the time, how she then became so well known and renowned to this day. You know, modern botanists would be, would be very f- familiar with Ellen's name, but I think in general, Irish people would not would not know of her name. So yet the mystery of her life, um, her character, where her character had come from, how she had found the strength to overcome all kinds, including illness, uh, to become this really fascinating, interesting person. That, 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 was, the, that was the primary drive. And I, at that, that period of time, I think silence, the whole idea of silence was very interesting to me and isolation and the idea of how we cope with isolation and how we develop in an isolated environment. So she she ticked a lot of boxes, I would say. Yeah, she certainly did. And also, um, I was wondering about that idea of turning the lives of real people into compelling fiction, which it really is, is an art in itself. Was this hard to do to blend fact and fiction? Because as you said there, she had, you discovered she had a very interesting life, even though it was quite a short life as well. But blending it and fictionalising that story, because I'm sure in parts you had to do that to make the story survive. Or did you not? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just wondering. Yes, I would say I used, there's a structure of, of fact there's a skeleton of fact so in general people are where they you know where where they are in the book is where they were at the time in in general mm. the challenge was my I wanted to balance being respectful to Ellen Hutchins and her legacy as a real person and also to her family her family are still you know she still has family down in Bantry and family that are involved in her legacy so I wanted to be respectful but as I as I got involved and got deeper into the book, I realised that I had to not set that aside, but almost really try and balance that with writing a good story and a story that readers would want to be engaged in. And also to get under the skin. I mean, we, we'll of, often with historical figures, we'll, we'll read the Wikipedia page, you know, and it will give, you know, the highlights of their, of their achievements and the, the, the bare facts of their, their birth, their life, their death. But there are so many stories, there's so much underneath that. And I really wanted to get under the skin. And then in the course of writing the book, I, I sort of worked out that there were three Ellen Hutchinses. There was the Ellen Hutchins that lived and she's a, you know, she's a mystery and will always be a mystery as, as in all historical people are mysteries at the end of the day. Then there was the Ellen Hutchins of fact, as I said, the Wikipedia page, Ellen Hutchins. And then there was going to be my Ellen Hutchins, which was, that was my responsibility. So I was fortunate in that there are a lot of letters in existence between Ellen Hutchins and this botanist Dawson Turner, this English botanist that she developed correspondence with. So I used the, the facts within those letters as, as the structure, you know, so the times of the year when events happened, where people were at certain times and um, the chronology of events generally, and also the tone of voice of both Ellen and Dawson Turner. And I really enjoyed writing Dawson Turner as well, like writing a male character. So the book, you know, it's primarily so it's, it's, it, the main protagonist is female. But I wanted to to show that within her life and living in this patriarchal society, which was, you know, her, her, her life was controlled to a certain extent, that there were very positive male influences in that life and that yeah. the... History is more complex than we often think. So within within that world where women were constricted, there were more nuanced relationships. And that was something I wanted to present in the book as well. So, 
Yeah, I think you definitely have achieved that. Also, I love the way you kind of skillfully depict the constraints, as you were talking about there, of class and gender. And all that comes in along with the historical background of the period as well. So it sounds like you were really... I don't know, won over by this. This It was, it's probably started as a type of project. And then, as you said, it split into three very distinct parts. I think that's very interesting how a story, you know, develops and emerges. But for all the limitations of her life, what I loved about the book is that it's her curiosity for the natural world. And I loved all the uh, references to nature. Are you yourself curious about nature? Is it something that you love? And did you know, were you familiar with the area of Bantry and Ballylicky House and all around there? I wasn't familiar with that part of West Cork at all. I had been to Cork. So the first thing I did was go, was travel down there and spend some time down there and got a sense. The house where she lived burnt down, unfortunately, but they rebuilt the house in a similar style. So it's and it's very close to the coast and you do get a sense of the atmosphere. There's a very distinct atmosphere down there. Um, am I interested in nature? Yes, but I would describe it as a very basic, almost uh, going back to my childhood. I would have been taught to observe things in hedgerows and to observe But having said that, I had no interest in botany in school. I found it very, very difficult. I have no head for either Latin names or for dates. So the idea of writing a a book of historical fiction about a botanist was extremely challenging. And to get into that mindset, I mean, there was the book that, that Ellen would have referred to, a reference book that she would have used a lot, William Withering's great treatise on, 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 on plant life at the time. So I, I got a copy of it's a, it's a four volume work and I would have I got a couple of, of the volumes and I read those for the language. And so I, I tried to I tried to work my way into it as a beginner because Ellen, um, she had a, she would have had a basic education. She would have learned some reading, geography. She would have learned the women's arts of sewing and as they're considered at the time. Mm-hmm. But she would not it, she would not have been taught Latin. Very unlikely. And in fact, we know we know I know we know that she didn't uh, know Latin. She says it herself in her letters. So she would have not have been taught botany or any of the science subjects, um, even though boys would have been in, at the time. Girls weren't. So she herself started as a complete novice. And she says it herself at one point, you know, you know, two years ago, I had I had no idea of of anything to do with botany. So she she worked she she was self-taught to a large extent and she worked her way into it. And that's how I approached it. I thought if Ellen could achieve that, I could achieve the you know the the small amount of knowledge yeah, that was that's... needed um to communicate. I I also didn't want to bog the book down in botany because it's not a book that is primarily about botany. I think the botany in it is quite accessible. And then the the other interesting thing is me now um, is it uses a different language. You know, over the over the years, the nomenclature has changed. So to a modern, a, a, the plants that are named in the book would all have modern botanical references. So I almost approached it as if it was this sort of archaic language, this archaic form, and that freed me up to, you know, to to venture places that I probably would have been quite nervous about. Yeah, so it was quite, it was really courageous, I think, writing this book. And so I think I think we'll stop the chat there. It was really interesting to hear the background to the novel. And I recommend it to anyone who's listening. Marianne Lee's debut novel, A Quiet Tide from New Island Books. So Marianne, are you up now yes, for the Toaster Challenge? 
Okay, great. So we're going to set the toast. We're going to put it in the toaster. Peter is here and he's putting, I think we have nice um, rye bread, actually. Any strawberry jam? So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, we definitely, and we can have some melting butter as well. And the coffee's on. So I am just going to put the toast down. And then really looking forward, Marianne, to hear you talking about a book that you really like. One, two, three, and off you go. Today I'm going to talk about um, Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead by Olga Tukarchuk. The book came out in translation in 2018 and in 2019, Tukarchuk won the Nobel Prize for Literature. At the start of the book, we meet Janina Tuszeczko, who's a retired teacher living in Silesia in Poland near the Czech border. And her neighbour, Big Feet, all the characters in the book have very eccentric names, has been found dead with an animal bone lodged in his throat. And this is followed by a series of grisly ritualistic murders. Hoof marks are found near the site of many of the murders. And the implication is that nature itself is taking revenge on the hunting mad citizens of the local town. And we follow Janina in her attempts to engage local authorities in her theories on the murders. In between times, she is translating William Blake into Polish and devising astrological charts, which she believes go some way to explaining the strange events in the town. Janina is up there with literature's great eccentrics. As an older woman, she's marginalised and ridiculed. The book is often very funny as she punctures the egos of the town's mostly male uh, leading citizens, only to be constantly dismissed as a crank. She feels impotent and all through the book there's this sense of impending doom and tension as we realise that at some point Janina's frustration will lead to some kind of cataclysmic revenge. The book works as a standard European noir thriller, if that's your thing, it's definitely mine, but it's much more than that as you would expect from a Nobel Prize winning author. For a very short, concise book it deals with major themes to do with what makes us human, what separates us from the animals and uh, the nature of savagery. Olga Tukarczuk is a very controversial figure in her native Poland. Um, She's in the tradition of great philosophical novelists such as Siebold and Kundera. There's hints of magic realism in the book which reminded me of Toni Morrison. Um, Also similar to Toni Morrison is the tone of sorrowful rage that permeates the book. Um, It's an extremely accessible read, wise, funny and sad and it was my favourite book this year. And that was absolutely excellent. Thank you so much. Um, I actually haven't read that book. I know that she had, I remember when she won the Man Booker Prize uh, for fiction for her book, Flights, isn't that right, in 2000. And and actually, um, I think they've made a film out of the the book Drive Your Power. Agnieszka Holland. I don't know. Have you seen that, No, I'm very interested. And I wonder, is it it available with with the translation? Is it dubbed? Yeah, she... I know it's called, yeah. it's called Spore, it's I think. controversial. So it would be yeah, very it's interesting. very controversial, apparently. In yeah, Poland. I think, yeah, I mean, but she is such mm. a controversial figure. And, you know, that, that it's great that reading her brings you back to people yeah. like Sebald and Kundera and people like that, or actually that they influence yeah. her to write the way she writes. So it, uh, to me, it sounds like a, a brilliant kind of ecological detective novel or a philosophical thriller. But as you say, it is so much more than that. So thank you, Marianne, for talking about Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead by the Polish Nobel Prize winner Olga Tucharczyk. I had to look up the name, the um, pronunciation of her name. <laughs> 
Chikarchik. And I'll definitely be reaching for that book over the summer. And we can't really let you go, Marianne, without again mentioning your new beautiful novel, A Quiet Tide, published by New Island Books. Came out in 2020, if anybody wants to go and look for it. And all details on Olga Chikarchik's book and also Marianne Lee's will be available on our Books for Breakfast website, www.booksforbreakfast at buzzbright.com. When people think of Swedish poetry, often the very first name that comes to mind is Thomas Transchomer, the Nobel Prize winner, much translated into English. But Peter, I know that you have another Swedish poet that you really admire and you've brought his book in today to the breakfast table. So would you like to tell us who the poet is and why why you like him so much? Yeah, the poet is Lars Gustafsson and He's about five years younger than Transtromer. And it's funny because Sweden is a very strong country in poetry. We don't we don't often realise it. And Gustafsson is is a is a very fine poet. He was. I mean he died just a couple of years ago, but a very fine and very prolific poet. And he would have been in Scandinavia. He would have been one of the best known um authors. He was a a novelist as well as a poet. And he wrote a whole flow, if you like, of poetry, novels, short stories, critical essays articles all from the 1950s onwards and he would have been he would have been pretty known outside of Sweden as well but for our purposes his selected poems was published by Bloodaxe and that was translated by John Irons and it was published by Bloodaxe in 2015 and in fact it was a poetry book society recommendation or a recommended translation and it got shortlisted for various other prizes so i suppose in some ways even though he's very well known, he would have been also something of an outsider in in Swedish kind of writing, an unusual kind kind of poet, sort of sort of spiky and scientific. In some ways, he'd resemble somebody like Miroslav Holub. He spent a long time outside of Sweden in Texas. Maybe that has something to do with his outsider status. Um, so he was a doctorate. He had a doctorate in philosophy that he got when he was in his twenties, and so maybe. The philosophy plus the keen interest in scientific subjects makes him that bit different. I mean, he's he, he often explores territories that you don't normally maybe expect a poet to to venture into. So that's yeah. So that's that's a little bit about him. Yeah, uh, he's a really interesting poet, and I mean, I know you've you've mentioned um, a lot of his achievements there, but I suppose for the purposes of our podcast, I really want to know why do you like his poetry so much? I like him because. There's a kind of a sharpness, a spikiness about about the work. Uh, he has a sort of an unusual perspective on things. I mean, in some ways, as I was mentioning, he's kind of cool and scientific. Um, he worked as a registrar for the National Land Survey, so he was used to being very precise and exact. But at the same time as that, there's a, I don't know, there's a fieriness about him, a fiery and untrammeled imagination at work. And it's all about making surprising connections. I mean, I suppose it's always best explained by examples, I think. Um, mm. One of my favourite poems is called The Silence of the World Before Back. And he just tries to imagine a world without the well-tempered clavier or the musical collection, the collection of keyboard cannons and fugues and other pieces of music. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a, I'll give you a blast of, of that. Yeah, that um, would be good to hear. That'd be lovely. So, yeah, he's just trying to remember all these, all, all these things. You know, there must have been a world before the trio sonata in D, a world before the A minor partita. But what was that world like? 
and he imagines lonely remote churches where the soprano voice of, of the Easter Passion had never in helpless love twined itself round the gentler movements of the flute, gentle expanses of landscape where only old woodcutters are heard with their axes, the healthy sound of strong dogs in winter, and, like a bell, skates biting into glassy ice, the swallows swirling in the summer air, the shell that the child listens to, and nowhere back, nowhere back, skating silence of the world before back. It's just that kind of, you know, it's just, I like the idea behind that very much. Um, yeah, and there's and another, there's another poem as well that you like, isn't there, called Winter in a Westphalian Village? Yeah, I mean, there's loads, but it, but I think um, there's something very painterly about this one. And again, it's it's intense. It's a sort of, it's, it's a way of seeing or... Uh, a way of attention, if you like, that that produces lines like some someone has placed a bowl of fine porcelain over the ponds and hills and trees. At times this bowl is lit up from above and something stands out, only vaguely. The water of the ponds is not exactly frozen, but not exactly water either. A state between states where light from a distant car in the dusk vibrates, the light from the depths of space, far too ancient to maintain its wavelength. At a bend in the road, a faint warming smell of pigsties. Two wild duck fly up purposefully, as if the underworld were full of birds. I mean, I love that. I suppose you might say it's a state between states because that's often where his poems situate themselves. And he, I, I love that marvellous closing image too of the birds flying up out of the underworld. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's such a beautiful poem to hear there and it, it, it really sounds beautiful when you read it out loud as well. And what you were saying earlier about his poetry being precise and exact, but also full of imagination is really, really apparent in that poem. I love that final image of the birds as well flying up out of the underworld. Another example of that in between this is a short poem called Smoothness about a kind of still moment at the end of the summer where the poet in his rowing boat, afraid of damaging the strangely great silence of this morning surface, keeps his oar waiting in the air. And that could be another image for his poetry, the oar poised above the surface of the water. But, you know, there's something kind of metaphysical. Sometimes he reminds me of John Donne. He's got that metaphysical sort of wit about him. Another brief one. All iron longs to become rust. All iron longs to become rust, said the old metallurgist. It wants to unite with the air, sink down to the bed of lakes, become red earth. Not only iron longs for its disintegration. Utopias subside powerlessly and become rhetoric. Even proud monotheism rusts away and becomes pleasantly teeming amoral polytheism. Sharp blades, gleaming swords and heavy axes never last eternally. All iron strives to become rust, said the old metallurgist. Mm, what a wonderful poem to hear. Um, and I, I like one of his sonnets, Sonnet 24, where he writes about a dog. Well, he's actually talking to to a dog. Uh, dogs have featured a bit on our podcast, haven't they, Peter? They have. Uh, they have been a few, all right. Yeah, including our own snoring dog, Oscar. He's he's appeared in the room when he, I think he likes poetry, actually. He likes the sound of it. He comes in and listens. Um, or, he just likes, and, or he just likes snoring. Maybe he likes snoring. Anyway, he's here beside me snoring away um, happily. And I'm going to read this sonnet by Lars Gustafsson about a dog. 
I know something about you you don't know. You are a dog. In frosty autumn earth, you're digging for a hidden bumblebee. A word for this could be a truth affliction. I know minus truth minus affliction. Secretly, we envy animals for this. There is no word that captures what they do. Just as deferred the outcome, wordless, with no uncertainty, through that thin body a fierce struggle streams. You are a dog. The faint and stubborn sound that leads you is an insect. And you don't know that you will die. Outer events, it seems, all coincide. The same faint, stubborn sound. You know something about me I don't know. That's great, Enda. Thanks for that. And... Uh, as usual, any information about Lars Gustafsson and anything else we discuss on this programme is available at www.booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this uh, podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so. We'll be back again next Thursday morning. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.